Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, good morning to you. It's June 17th. And uh, and here we are yet again. I'm going to do something a little different uh, today, um, at least the beginning, um, and and uh, mention some things that are not related to the big stories uh, that have been taking all of our attention, although we'll get to them uh, soon enough, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I don't know how much uh, attention this has gotten, but I I just want to put it out there in case you hadn't uh, heard or seen it. The fact that a chief executive, a CEO of a huge, huge uh, utility company, uh, stood in a courtroom yesterday and over the course of a half hour because it took that long responded with three words to each charge that was leveled from the bench The charges were 84 counts of manslaughter. And before the judge read each count, there was a screen which showed the human being no longer here. And no longer here because of the criminal negligence. of the company overseen by this CEO. So 84 times with a different face staring at this CEO, he was asked, how do you plead? How do you plead to the charge of manslaughter of this human being? And 84 separate times that CEO yesterday said, Guilty, your honor. A CEO in America pleading guilty to the deaths of 84 people. The CEO who was doing so was not doing so as a person. He was representing the company. He was not saying he was guilty. He was saying his corporation was guilty. And as we know from law in the United States, corporations, we've been told, to our astonishment, are people. The corporation is uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric. The 84 people they killed were killed as a result of fire caused by the utter negligence of PG&E to keep up their Transmission lines. Um, Now, you would think that if you were guilty of 84 deaths, you'd be looking at some serious time, right? But of course, while corporations get a lot of the good perks of being human, you can't put a corporation in jail. And so, 
it was decided that because of the neglect that led ultimately to the fire, which led ultimately to the deaths of 84 human beings, the loss of extraordinary amount of acreage and property. This is the fire that destroyed the inaptly named little town of Paradise, California. But because the neglect that led to it went back so far, our justice system could not figure out any particular executive, any flesh and blood human being to be charged. Or so the DA said. It is extremely unusual for an American corporation to be charged with homicide. And yet, what is the, what is the impact to PG&E? Oh, it's going to pay the maximum penalty of... Uh, Oh dear, a little less than three and a half million dollars. I had originally read that as 348, but I swear to God, there is a, there's a dot in between the three and the four, 3.48 million dollars. Now, of course, when all these troubles happened, PG&E did what companies always do to shield themselves, declare bankruptcy. That happened last year. And they cited bankruptcy because they said, heck, we got more than $30 billion in potential liability claims coming at us. So we're going bankrupt. It was shown throughout the trial that decisions made by management allowed the the power lines that they owned to deteriorate. They stopped the frequency of inspections. They stopped the thoroughness of inspections. And this happened over a course of years, even decades. The company announced new rules, allotting, um, a, you know, saying there was a cap on the amount of time any inspector could stay with any one line. <laughs> Inspectors were told, just move on, move on, move on. This is what happens uh, to workers all the time. Charges were levied and proven that even these inspectors were not even trained properly. And they were forced to use methods that limited their ability to even see and catch problems. Some of the oldest transmission lines PG&E has still has, including the one that started this Paradise Fire, were built in the 1910s and 20s, over 100 years old. So I'm reading the Wall Street Journal story on this and saying, well, then, but, 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 but what happens? I mean, what, we got 84 people dead? 
Uh, yeah. Here's what the Wall Street Journal says. <clears throat> PG&E is expected to exit bankruptcy later this year. More leverage than ever after settling liability claims totaling $25.5 billion. Hedge funds who bet on the company's recovery are now set to make billions from the resulting plan. A complex compromise between shareholders and debt holders. There are people, the usual suspects. PG&E will go on and will recover. And these hedge funds are going to make tons, billions off of these, I guess, perfectly legal ways of avoiding real payment for crime. And then the article ends with the victims, the families of the dead, they will come out of the bankruptcy with uncertainty over whether they can cash out the stock. They're going to get stock in the company that killed their loved ones. They will be left with uncertainty over when they can cash out the stock they will receive as compensation for their lost loved ones, for their homes, for their businesses. Because half of the $13.5 billion settlement awarded to them will be paid in, in company shares through a trust. I don't pretend to understand the the legal aspects of that. But I cannot read that story without feeling extreme rage. Guilty, Your Honor. 84 people dead. And they'll be popping champagne corks on Wall Street. All right. Sorry. And we have not had an obit of the day in so long um, because we've been uh, knee deep in obits. But this one, and it is a someone who did succumb to COVID-19, I, I just found the life an interesting life, so I have to share it with you. It's a, a life of good Jewish boy gone bad. Alan Hurwitz. Um, he was a middle school uh, English and social studies teacher in, in, uh, in Detroit. He, um, he was an advisor on desegregation in Detroit's public schools. Um, he was appointed as a member of a state task force on school violence and education. He was director of a civic group called New Detroit. And then over a nine-week period in 1992, Alan Hurwitz robbed 18 banks. He robbed 18 banks. He was all over the upper Midwest, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois. The FBI had him on his, their most wanted list. He was, um, he he was called the zombie bandit because all of the tellers who had 
faced him uh, said that he had this like blank expression on his face, like a zombie. The TV show America's Most Wanted featured him. And that, as it often did, led to his arrest. So um, he spent 12 years in prison. Which, if you think about it, that ain't bad. You rob 18 banks and you get less than a year for each. So he spent 12 years in prison. And gets out. But then uh, it happened again. 2008, he pulled another string of armed robberies. This time he's on the West Coast living with his daughter. So it was in Oregon and California. And he got captured again in Wyoming. And this time he got sentenced to 17 years. And that's where he was until one month ago when he was among many who was granted a compassionate release because COVID-19 was spreading among the inmates. Eight prisoners there had died by the time he was freed. He had not even been tested in prison. They just let him out. And of course, he had it. He died. He was 79. Just a few addenda to this social activist, middle school teacher who turned into the zombie bandit. He had been growing increasingly angry that his three decades of trying to make things better in trying to make things better in the desegregation of Detroit schools and trying to make things better with education and and violence and all of the stuff that he was involved in, not really ending up doing, getting anywhere. He really was getting mad. And then here's where the real break happened. He got into crack and it was feeding the crack habit that led to the bank robberies. Strangely, his daughter said that it was in prison that he found his real calling. He organized inmates. He taught them how to, uh, you know, love um, reading and writing. He, uh, he taught them history. And he never, ever said that he felt any guilt about his crime spree. None whatsoever about the money he stole. His daughter said he hated bankers. And he said they're federally insured, so no harm done. His only regret was any trauma he caused the tellers who believed he was had a gun in his waistband, which he did not. So there you have it, the strange story of Alan Hurwitz, teacher, social activist, robbed 18 banks in nine weeks. Okay, so that was just a little something different. I ordered a bunch of masks, um, gosh, has to be almost eight, six weeks ago, and <clears throat> I thought I'd been had because they never came. I never heard that they were coming. Uh, 
Um, and I, I checked to make sure that, you know, and in fact, I had charged them to my credit card, the credit, they, the, whoever was making these masks had the money. I did not have the masks. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, so they came yesterday and I pulled one out and wow, it's really nice. It fits cloth and it fits really well. And it has a pocket, uh, for, um, for a filter and it also came with filters and and then I thought well I don't know how to how do you care for this <laughs> so I looked at the um, at the package that the mask had come in and and I read here here are the instructions I read carry this product Please divide the opposite side. Do not wear back. Anti-external will stick dust powder. Direct contact between mouth and nose will be detrimental to health. Wash the poison once a day. Wash it with warm water first, then hot and hot. Those are the instructions. <laughs> I thought, who the hell? What the huh? And I said, where the heck? And then I saw in little, in little print at the bottom, made in PRC. Uh, that would be the People's Republic of China, right? <laughs> I mean the the the, the little um, directions, uh, the care directions that came with it, suggested China to me, but uh, made in PRC nailed it. So um, I must say uh, their directions are a little off-putting because there's all kinds of I don't understand any of it. Please divide the opposite side. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Do not wear back. What does that mean? Anti-external, external, probably, will stick dust powder? Um, and wash the poison once a day? <laughs> Hello? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I got them finally. I got like four of them. <laughs> Wash the poison. All right, I can do that. Hang on a minute here. I lost my... Okay. Um, I came upon a quote from uh, Bob Dylan. It's a, it's a current quote. I mean, he didn't actually sat for an interview... Um, and hang on here. Strangely, he sat for the interview with Douglas Brinkley, who is a historian, right? But it, it's quite clear from, uh, from the interview that, uh, they, they're sort of pals. I find that strange, but what the heck? So, but here's what, um, he, Brinkley asked Dylan, why didn't more people pay attention to Little Richard's gospel music? Actually, when Little Richard died recently, and I read his obituary, I was blown away by the fact that much of his talent went into production of gospel music. And I hadn't been, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. And he was asked about uh, Little Richard because he, he, he credits him with really his entire career. 
He said, uh, I grew up with him. He was there before me. He lit a match under me. He tuned me into things I never would have known on my own. And then he's asked, but why didn't more people pay attention to his gospel music? And I just want to read Dylan's response because I think it's just so um, helpful and, 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 and just right on about our culture and specifically our news culture and news and entertainment culture, okay? As Dylan says this, why didn't more people pay attention to his gospel music? Probably because gospel music is the music of good news. And in these days, there just isn't any. Good news in today's world is like a fugitive, treated like a hoodlum and put on the run, castigated. All we see is good for nothing news. And we have to thank the media industry for that. It stirs people up. Gossip and dirty laundry. Dark news that depresses and horrifies you. On the other hand, gospel news is exemplary. It can give you courage. You can pace your life accordingly, or try to anyway. And you can do it with honor and principles. There are theories of truth in gospel, but to most people it's unimportant. Their lives are lived out too fast. Too many bad influences. Sex and politics and murder is the way to go if you want to get people's attention. It excites us. And that's our problem. Bob Dylan. Wow. I was just blown away by that. We have a call. Hello, caller. This is Beth. Hi, Lynn. This is Beth calling. Hi, Beth. I, wish that, I bet that bank robber wishes he had your mask from the PRC. <laughs> he was doing his heist. Yeah, he what? He wouldn't have. Uh, he wouldn't have been said to have a zombie look. Exactly. After, right. And also, I've started having dreams where in my dreams, people are either wearing masks or last night I actually dreamt, why aren't people wearing masks? Yeah. Aren't those weird, these dreams that are so um, infused with our, you know, current anxieties? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also, I really wanted to call you Monday just with the senseless shooting that took place in Atlanta. And uh, as someone who has kind of lived there off and on for three years, I've never (laughs) seen a more, I've never dealt with a more corrupt police department Mm. than that in the city of Atlanta. And let me just say that um, my wife and I were at this one kind of, it was a brewery birthday party and we were in a VIP area. I went to go, band was starting, we wanted to hear, I go get us some drinks as I'm coming back. I hear my wife say to this guy who was probably middle-aged, you know, she just said, my wife was standing there. Next thing he goes, get the fuck away from me. And he pushed her so hard that her head kind of bounced off the concrete. And what? Of course, I my mean, first, the concrete oh, yeah. floor or wall? Floor? The concrete floor. She went down. Oh, she went down. He pushed her a good 15 feet. So, you know, your first reaction is, I want to go get this guy. But I just started shouting, assault, assault. And one of Atlanta's police officers came over. I'm attending to her. And then next thing you know, she's like, he's getting away. He's going on the other side of the fence. The officer then says, thinking, oh, well, you've had too much to drink, that uh, he goes, well, you said you didn't want to press charges. And I then said, you never asked that question. And, of course, we would have pressed charges. And she had a mild concussion. He just didn't want to write it up for the evening. Um, and then another situation. And they never went after the guy. They never went after- no, 
Never what did, did. Why did he push? Anything. What happened? Why did he push her? I, nothing. Not just because I think it was a, a kind of a homophobic. My wife was standing here, and he. Oh, she said my wife was standing, said, and that yeah, did it. Because I was yeah, coming back, it, and I heard she had a wife. I heard the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Okay. And, All right. So it was homophobic. And so that was wow. interaction number one. Interaction number two was a member of our crew. We were shooting late. One eat one night. We, we must say that you you work in the film industry. Yeah, you work in the film industry. Okay, okay. And one of our crew guys who worked in special effects, and I mean this special effects guys are a different breed. Let me just say. <laughs> I'm sure. And this guy, this guy was built like a brick shit house. So nicest guy stops, gets gas. Two young kids pulled a gun on him and had it up to his head. And he said he had that moment of, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight or are you going to fight? And he fought. And he got the kid down, and the gun went off, and he got shot in the leg. Kids take off. Who got got shot? Your friend? Our special effects. Yeah, our special effects. Was shot in the leg. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he got shot in the leg. Okay. And uh, so anyway, the police come, and they, you know, he was bleeding, and they had paramedics, and they're like, well, you know, we take you to the hospital. If the ambulance takes you to the hospital... Um, you know, your car is going to be impounded. He's like, why is my car being impounded? And the other thing they told him, too, is, you know what, good luck. We'll never find those guys. We'll never find those kids. Even though they had video, they had everything, that was his first. And he said, I've never thought that would happen, that the first reaction was. I was just held up and shot. And, and his car was going to be impounded, his and they're telling him they're not even going to try to find the guys who Correct. had the gun to his head. Exactly. So he drove himself to the hospital with a leg wound. I mean, and just other, because when you're working on a film crew too, and it doesn't matter what city, you normally have police on payroll or you're paying municipal police. Yeah, for security. Yes, I've worked in a lot of cities where you hear, oh, you know, this city really has corrupt police. This city really has corrupt police. Atlanta, they really have corrupt police. Um, and, and it sounds like they don't like to work. It sounds like they don't oh, like to work. When they would put in time cards and stuff, and I said, how does this guy work? When does he get to work as a cop? Because our one show paid him for like 64 straight hours. How is that possible? But, of course, you can't question it. So when I heard the the reaction from the police that were overworked and everything, bullshit was my reaction. Okay. And uh, I just hope whatever changes that are coming there. And, and, you know, the sad part is there are a couple officers that I got to deal with that some of them I even still stay in touch with. They're good people. But you have other interactions with other ones. And I've had other ones with with police in that department, too, that um, it doesn't, it didn't surprise me what happened, especially when I saw, you know, majority of that force is African-American. When I saw it was two white officers in that tape, I thought, oh, geez. And when you look at that tape, and, you know, the guy's as calm as calm can be. When they go to cuff him, I swear (laughs) to God that one cop whispered something under his breath to him to cause that reaction. It was that same, am I going to fight? Is it fight or fright? And he ran. And he ran. Yeah, so those are just some of the things I just wanted to call and to say to you, and just like I said, with some experiences with with that particular force. And uh, well, thank and, you. And not and not understanding, you know, why this why this happened, especially in, again in a city where if if and we've said this so many times, if we were African American, if if we were gay and African American. Here, Mike in D.C., gay or lesbian, I just said gay. You are. That's one of the cities I would want to live because you have such a strong community there. Right. You don't feel, you know, it's not, I hate to say it, it's not like Pittsburgh. You actually have an African upper class, middle class. Right. You don't have those societal pressures that you have, like up here. You don't have those in Atlanta. And the no. sad part is that this, this, in, this, in that way, did spread to that city. Yeah. So. God. Yeah. 
And as far as your corporations, I'm not surprised, Lynn, because when you think their whole thing is, is it risk? You know, what's going to be more? If we take the risk, don't take What's our risk reward? Yeah, And that's why actuaries now are the hottest, you know, they've been the hottest thing with with corporations now for how many sure. years? Because they now so know they can the be penalties. better. They can be better gamblers with our lives. Yes, I mean yeah. the penalties. The penalties we have to pay are nothing if they had to actually replace those transmission lines. That's they right. Did. That cost to our shareholders would have been more. Now, yeah. hey, we've now just done all these <clears> things. So it's it's enough. disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And if corporations are people, instead of them being allowed to file bankruptcy, I want a death certificate. They can no longer be that company. And whatever assets they have, they should be seized, just like someone's death. Yeah. And, and then they shareholders executor over it. Yeah. Oh, God. Hey, well, thanks for your call. Thanks for your great call. Appreciate well, it. Thanks, Lynn. Have a Hang good in one. there. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, man. Okay. I want to... Um, there's so many things to share. Um, quickly, just in case you didn't see this, um, uh, yesterday, I believe, was the um, second anniversary of the death. Is that true of Antoine Rose? an unarmed black boy at the hands of a white East Pittsburgh cop. And I, I, I want to say that his mother, uh, Michelle Kenny, was in Washington, D.C. Uh, yesterday. And um, her son, Antoine, his name came out of the foul mouth of the President of the United States, who um, at one point before he did this photo op with some very hand-picked uh, police representative signed this uh, crapola, you know, order on, on policing. And um, at one point... Uh, Trump said, um, I have just concluded a meeting with incredible families, just incredible families that have been through so much. The families of Ahmad Arbery, Botham Jean, Antoine Rose, Jamel Robertson, and on and on. He went on and on. These are incredible people, incredible, that seemed to be the word of the day. And it's so sad. Well, Antoine Rose's mother is enraged. She is quoted on CNBC as saying, I can't stand the lies. And the lies were that Trump had met with her. She hadn't gone to the White House to meet him. She put on Facebook, I am not in the White House. I chose not to meet their president. I came to Washington to meet and speak with senators that could have an impact on this movement. I will not have a conversation with anyone who disrespects us. I will not have a conversation with someone that clearly will not have any empathy. <clears throat> I just wanted to say that he can't even do a thing like that. <laughs> Meeting with family members without still lying. And why any of these families she made the right choice. While why any of these families would go is beyond me. So, just wanted to add that uh, local uh, touch. Um, also. 
uh, interesting piece in the uh, New York Times today headlined why protest movements are civil only in retrospect. And it's a very, <clears throat> a very good piece because it tells us that even though there's a federal holiday now, of course, January 20th, honoring the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As this piece says, in his life, he was spied on and blackmailed by the U.S. government. He was arrested roughly 30 times. He was beaten. He was stalked. And he was assassinated. And when he died, he was one of the most disliked people in America. So talking to a number of historians, this piece uh, shows how in the moment these Social movements, as they unfold, they are portrayed often, um, well, the parts of them that are the most uh, disruptive, looters, uh, that uh, are the most uh, perhaps violent, uh, the the verbiage that is most terrifying to a white ear. As the movement is happening, the media portrays these movements in one way, and that's a scary way. What Dylan was saying. And then, give it a decade or two, when we retell the story of the movement, when it's behind us, it's the least confrontational parts of the movement that get pushed to the fore. The movement gets sanitized for public consumption. The Reverend King sanitized for public consumption. This is how our history gets so warped. We forget about the opposition. We forget that Dr. King was hated, spied on, beaten, blackmailed. And we create a mythology. That we can live with. So when we think of Rosa Parks, what do you think? Hard-working woman, finally, after a hard day at work. She was tired. She just wanted to sit down. That's the whitewashed version. The reality was Rosa Parks was very much a long-time activist, and her sitting on that bus was a calculated political act. But that's not the story that most Americans have been taught. So what ends up happening is an antiseptic image of these at the time. I'm feared and loathed activists. Also an oversimplified 
story of right and wrong ways to get change. And so any hope of learning, actually, from how a movement did push things, bend that arc of the moral universe a little toward justice, gets it gets messed with in the retelling. It somehow then becomes, well, of course. What wonderful people. That's not what they were getting at the time. And what we think of now is is not the reality. Here's one professor who says, you know, the whole purpose of protest, and I, someone said this, uh, I think Susan, my sister said it the other day. The whole purpose of protest is to interrupt your daily life, is to interrupt the previous scheduled programming, is to make you uncomfortable, is to make you pay attention. It, the lesson is not that plain civility is something that would ever force change. Ask nicely. Say please. Like George Floyd said how many times as the life was being squeezed out of him. Say pretty please. And here's the reality. When Dr. King was assassinated and the rioting broke out, communities were set on fire. What happened? White people got scared. And they voted for Richard Nixon. Because he was promising them law and order. In 92, the Los Angeles riots. What happened in the wake of that? The city of Los Angeles voters elected their first Republican mayor in decades. So there's all, what happened when we had a black president? Yeah, the white people freak out and give us Donald Trump and his neo-fascist, racist nationalists. The reality of the story, the real history, is rarely taken in. And remember that. You think you know about Dr. King? You think you know about all of these historical figures? Black, white, and other? You, we don't. When those brave young people sat down trying to integrate those uh, lunch counters in the early, early 60s. Gallup pollsters weren't far behind, and they found that 57% of Americans thought those sit-ins and those freedom riders were hurting chances of integration After the march on Washington, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, that was 1963. After the march on Washington, the Gallup pollsters were right there. And you know what they found directly after Dr. King did his I Have a Dream speech? 74%, three quarters of Americans found 
and believed that mass demonstrations like that harmed their cause. And remember, Dr. King at that time was looked on with fear and loathing. Well, let's do some more history. You saw that um, Aunt Jemima has been uh, retired. Uh, Yeah, Aunt Jemima's bit the dust, along with Confederate statues, even though she got a remake. Remember when Aunt Jemima used to, you know, look like an old mammy out of Gone with the Wind, and then they they thought, you know, that's a little, uh, and they they gave her a a do-over, so she looked uh, sort of modern, didn't have that. um... Yeah, so she's uh, Quaker Oats, which owns uh, the brand, is is saying that she came from a racial stereotype, um, and... uh, (laughs) She's uh, she got to go. Uh, she's based off a old minstrel uh, song, uh, reportedly sung by the slaves called "Old Aunt Jemima." Yeah, okay. Well, um, Aunt Jemima is uh, very much the whole thing linked to, of course, uh, Southern slavery, racism, the whole bit. But. Um, also want to uh, clue you into um, another uh, purveyor of uh, a food staple, and and that would be uh, Uncle Ben. I mean, I don't know what's in your cupboard. You might have Aunt Jemima there right alongside Uncle Ben. And uh, Uncle Ben, this is an interesting story, and I want to thank... Uh, Actually, uh, Father Joseph for sending it to me. The truth about... Jeez, <laughs> the truth. Here again, God, we've got so much to learn. So much to learn. Um, Uncle Ben... Oh, come on. Why won't it let me have the page? Uncle Ben was away for a very, uh, you know, for a, a rich uh, white company to, um, you know, to, to to sell. It was originally called Uncle Ben's Plantation Rice. And understand that, and I can't find the article, I can't believe this, understand that um, the... Uncle uh, Uncle Ben, Aunt Jemima. How come all these uh, black, uh, you know, logos um, are aunts and uncles? Well, I'll tell you why. Because white folks, well, they were uncomfortable allowing a black man to be called Mister. For that matter, I guess even acknowledging he has a last name. And the same for black women. So they don't get to be a Mr. or a Mrs. They're called aunt and uncle, which is what you did to slaves aunt or uncle first name no last name no standing and it is very common in our history to use black faces to promote products to white audiences 
there was no Uncle Ben. There was a, uh, I guess, there was a um, Mater D at some hotel that was used to model his his face. I th- he got a few bucks for it, but his name, his story, were was used to sell rice for over eighty years. But he didn't make any money from it. And I guess Uncle Ben's still out there, isn't he? They haven't uh, pulled pulled that. Yes, he was given $50. Wow. <laughs> For... Um, the exclusive rights to his image. The people who gave him the 50 bucks obviously profited by the hundreds of millions. Uncle Ben's plantation rice. This stuff is so suffused in our history that we can all spend the rest of our lives unlearning what we've been taught and learning what we need to know. Closer to home, um, to our local newspaper, um, I, I do want to say the uh, City Papers new issue came out today, and uh, its cover is um, its cover is the uh, why am I blanking on his name Santiago, um, the photojournalist who uh, was also pulled from coverage. Uh, because he retweeted um, Alexis Johnson's um, very funny uh, Kenny Chesney uh, tweet. Um, He is on the cover, and he has left the Post-Gazette. Ryan Dito, who wrote the story, says that he probably will be leaving Pittsburgh, too. And Ryan says, this is what Pittsburgh keeps doing. We don't have a lot of young black professionals. And on top of it, uh, Santiago was a um, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. And we don't have a lot of immigrants. Young black immigrant professional and He's gone, going to be gone. Block and Burris are destroying this 126-year-old newspaper. It's something. And we've talked about how it's become a national story. And the Washington Post, which has already published articles about it today published a huge piece about it it's very large i don't know what it looks like in a print edition but if you're looking at it on your computer it goes on and on and on and on here's some Reporters say stories have disappeared from the Post-Gazette's website, and it's unclear who is writing the paper's skimpy, unbylined articles about the protests in Pittsburgh. I, they talk, if you, you're not getting information about what's going on here with Black Lives Matter uh, protests. You're not getting it from the Post-Gazette. Actually, Ryan Dito is um, 
talked to and quoted in the Washington Post article today um, about the fact that by default, this struggling alternative weekly, Pittsburgh City Paper, has had to desperately try to cover what normally would be covered by our daily newspaper. And you heard Ryan talk about that uh, last week and saying there's no way he can. They've got we got a staff of like uh, three or four who are actually out there do it, and you can't do it. But if you want to see the um, from A to Z how this story plays out um, <clears throat> on a national stage, um, wow. And and Burris, the um, editor, um, is left uh, to what? Um, appear on Laura Ingram on Fox News, uh, trying to spread his lies about what is happening there. Michael Santiago, I'm sorry, I forgot his first name. Um, here again in the Washington Post, coverage of the protests since these people have been removed, these reporters have been removed, since coverage of the protests, since uh, coverage of the protests has been noticeably muted in the pages of the Post-Gazette. The day that Santiago had been scheduled to photograph protests, the paper instead ran a wire photo of the demonstrations along with a short story with no interviews. The next day, a larger story appeared. It was written by the paper's classical music critic. They are not allowing their news reporters to cover the biggest news story in a lifetime and the classical music critic is now covering the protests. The the, uh, Washington Post reports more recent stories about local protests uh, now appear as short write-ups composed mostly of photos and descriptions based on Facebook posts, and they carry no bylines. That's your Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It ends with Michael Santiago. After his assignment was canceled, Santiago looked through a collection of Black Lives Matter protest photos taken by photojournalist friends around the country that weekend. He was devastated that he couldn't document what he called one of the most important civil rights moments of his lifetime. To have that taken away from me, he said, I have no words for it. On Monday, he announced he would take a buyout and leave the Post-Gazette. What a shame. Um, Doug says, little known fact, you can use Uncle Ben's pre-made rice to grow psychedelic mushrooms. All righty. Well, um, geez. Thanks. Never know. Um, okay, and here, let me just, I'm going to, 
let you go. I just got the Allegheny County Health Department report. Let's see. Uh, today's report reflects no increase in cases. Um, and an increase, though, of three deaths. Wow. Okay. Okay. I think that does done did it for uh for me. Um hope you have a, a good day. Be careful out there. And talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.